2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode of The Vault, we have Harry Berger's talk about Leonardo da Vinci and Vasari's Lives of the Painters. Harry Berger was a scholar of Renaissance English literature who wrote books about art history, anthropology, and philosophy. He taught at UC Santa Cruz, where he was an emeritus professor until he died in 2021 at age 96. I'm Lawrence Weschler, Ren Weschler. I'm the director of the New York Institute for the Humanities. And we are extremely pleased to have with us today Harry Berger. Harry Berger Jr. is out of Santa Cruz, where parenthetically he was my freshman seminar teacher. This is a true story. This is this is what having a great teacher your first week as a freshman could do for you. We were reading Plato. We were reading The Republic. And I announced that this was a bunch of bullshit, that no wonder Socrates kept winning. The people he was talking to were a bunch of idiots. And they kept on saying stupid things. And no wonder he won every argument and blah, blah, blah. And I was going on at some length. And Harry said, but the thing of it is, Ren, Plato is a genius and you're a freshman. He's playing you like a piano. Why don't you be quiet for a second and listen to the music? Which was a pretty amazing lesson to get your first week in college. Without further ado, Harry.
1: My talk today is about the portrayal of Leonardo da Vinci and Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. Lives was first published in Florence in 1550 and was reprinted in 1568 in a greatly expanded version of about 4,000 pages. In organizing his narrative, Vassari took an idea common in his time, the idea of the Renaissance or rebirth of art, and made it the basis of a historical scheme modeled in part on the human life cycle. The basic argument of the Lives is this. Classical and modern art, had each gone through a three-stage career of improvement. Classical art and culture were destroyed by the combined forces of barbarian invasion and Christian zeal. After almost a 1,000 years of dark ages, the arts were reborn and began their second life. Vessari divides the modern era into three stages of infancy, adolescence, and maturity. This general scheme is easy enough to lampoon, It relies on what are now discredited developmental metaphors. Besides, the three-stage model has no organizing power in the 1568 edition most people use. Vasari, there shifts from a qualitative to a chronological criterion. When he adds the lives of his contemporaries to those in the 1550 edition, he puts them all in part three simply because they're contemporaries. So it's likely that neither he nor his readers took his narrative patterns too seriously. You might conclude that his real interest was in providing information about and judgments of art and artists, and that this is what gives the book its enduring value. It's often read as a collection of biographies that offers a good picture of the age, even if its information is unreliable. But this is a too simplified a response. I reject the idea that there's either a three-stage organizational model or no model at all. In my view, the real motor driving Vasari's story has only two gears, not three. Low gear drives the first two stages, toward one kind of conquest of nature, high gear drives a third stage toward another. Starting slowly in Giotto's time, the 13th century, 14th, picking up speed in Masaccio's in the 15th, the painters and sculptors in low gear gradually perfect the means that enable them to produce accurate likenesses. But beginning with Leonardo, art shifts into high gear and transcends imitation. The artists of the third stage draw forth from the mind, forms that surpass any to be found in nature. Let's call the low gear that drives the first two stages the gear of mimesis, or imitation, and the high gear that drives the third stage the gear of idealization. Mimesis covers the improvements in the graphic technology of representation. As enumerated by Vasari, these include geometry, perspective, proportion, foreshortening, and anatomy, the use of color and shading, and the interpretation of emotions and physical gestures. Although Vasari praises these accomplishments of the two gear stages, the naturalism of the second stage strikes him as too meticulous and labored. Its artists copied what they saw in nature, nothing more. But this critique is only superficially directed toward the awkwardness that results from fussy and pedestrian imitations of nature. The shift into high gear releases a level of facility, grace, and freedom that surpasses not only the second stage, but also nature itself. Vasari finds the sculpture and painting of the third stage at once more lifelike, and more beautiful than real life. But there's a difference between wanting to make better pictures of bodies as we see them and wanting to make pictures of better bodies than those we see. Vasari dreams of a glorified body redeemed from nature's imperfections. His critique of naturalism, therefore amounts to a critique of nature. The problems and contradictions that beset his narrative center on the tension between the increasing capability of the techniques of representation and the constraints imposed by the politics of representation. This resolves into a conflict between the claims of imitation and those of idealization. From Aristotle to the present day, the prevailing view of the relation between imitation and idealization tends to stress their harmonious and cooperative interplay. Even when, as in the case of Quattrocento art, scholars acknowledge the incompatibility between the novel appeal of naturalistic detail and the demand for idealized likenesses. They insist that the tension gets nicely resolved by the artists who transmit the torque upward into the so-called high Renaissance. On this point, Wilfrin, Panofsky, Lambert, and the standard art historical textbooks all agree and in doing so, they follow Vasari's lead. A notable exception, whom I'll come back to in a minute, is Paul Barolsky. In New Light on Old Masters, Ernst Gombrich repeats a standard argument when he claims that for Vasari, painting came to satisfy the two standards of realism, the imitation of nature, and of the ideal, the creation of beauty. Of the two, he observes, Realism appears to have precedence. The necessary condition of good painting is that it contains no mistakes, no distortion of natural appearances. At the same time, he rejects as too simple the idea that imitation comes first and that those who dislike the result as being too gruesome or trivial, I'm quoting, will subsequently touch it up or idealize it, close quote. Gombrich reads the lives in the light of his own two basic formulas, the originary principle, making comes before matching, and its operational structure, schema and correction. He goes on to show how the transformation of the schematic type into the ideal was mediated by mimesis in the work of such artists as Leonardo, Perugino, and Re- Re- Raphael. Raphael, and he concludes by reaffirming two Vasarian propositions. First, and I'm quoting. In the third, or perfect manner of art in the Renaissance, the problem of beauty was mastered as it had not been mastered before, at least since the days of classical antiquity. Second, in the age of the high Renaissance, the conquest of natural appearances went hand in hand with the realization of a human ideal of beauty. I think Gombrich endorses Vassari's meliorist scheme Because his reading of the lies is itself meteorist, bettering, (laughs) it ignores the traces of anxiety that trouble the benign surface of the story of art's progress. Predictably, as someone writing at the beginning of the 21st century, I'm concerned with an ideology as well as an ideal, and an ideology to which I give the name mimetic idealism. When Vasari began with mimetic idealism as a representational norm and converted it to a historical scheme, he was only tapping into the extant framework of self-understanding, the framework in terms of which the discourse of early modern art explains and justifies the practice it interacts with. Since patrons, like artists, imitate and emulate each other, Their competition results in the privileging of certain stylistic norms, the visual rhetoric of exemplarity that Gombrich and Vasari praise. Patrons for whom the control of the resources of self-representation is an important political asset invest in the new science of art in order to stimulate the production of images that persuasively express the ideal They also encourage the efforts of humanists, neoplatonists, and writers on art to rationalize or mythologize this system of patronage and of production. From such collaboration emerges the euphoric harmony of mimetic idealism. In this system, the shift from mimesis to idealization is smooth and effortless, like fluid drive, and other chimeras of the automotive imaginary. (laughs) Passari's Lives of the Artists both reflects and participates in this fluid-drive system, and so my attempt to unpack an alternative that will more or less strip his narrative gears is also aimed at the broader discursive context. What I'm after is something like the unconscious of the system, but the unconscious as a discourse, as a set of tropes, as a particular logic of relations condensed in the tropes. Elsewhere, I've tried to show how the structure of mimetic idealism may be analyzed in terms of the myths of Zeuxis, Pygmalion, Medusa, Marcius, and Narcissus, and especially in terms of their sinister, misogynist, and gynophobic impulses. Pygmalion's Ivory Maiden, for example, is both the product and the symbol of his misogyny, but not of misogyny only. Since he falls in love with his own fantasy and his own creation, his desire is both autoerotic and incestuous. What makes the semblance seductive is that although she appears to be alive, she's uncontaminated by life or otherness, and so she's better than nature. I note in passing that in the final section of the Romance of the Rose, there's an extended account of the Pygmalion myth, and that in some manuscripts, the story of Medusa is interpolated into that passage. In Why Mona Lisa Smiles, which I think is a really good book, Paul Barowski argues that Medusa's ability to turn living things to stone, coral, and marble produces an effect contrary to the one desired by Pygmalion, and brought about by Venus. This suggests to me that Medusa represents all the otherness, danger, and power evacuated from the male fantasy of the living doll. Medusa is woman's phallic revenge on Pygmalion. But that too is a male fantasy. What it betrays, in addition to fear of female desire and its castrating power, is bad conscience about the violence against women implicit in the Pygmalion construction. Barolsky notes that Vasari always has Pygmalion in mind, that he plays several variations on the myth, and that he sometimes links it together with the story of Medusa. Finally, a more expressly violent form of misogynist fantasy, is inscribed in an anecdote that Sari mentions or alludes to several times. This is the story of the Heraclean painter Zeuxis, who outstripped all artists in painting the female body. When he was commissioned to to decorate the temple of Hera in Croton, he decided to paint a Helen, and this is how he went about it. He asked who the most beautiful virgins in town were, had them all rounded up, picked five, and selected from each the best body part. It's a very yucky story. Uh, according to Pliny, the reason for this procedure was that Zutzes didn't believe it was possible to find in one body all the things he looked for in beauty, since nature has not refined to perfection any single object in all its parts, close quote. This explanation was picked up verbatim by Alberti who quoted it in his 1435 book on painting as a piece of practical advice. (laughs) And in subsequent writing on art, we find it stated as a general principle of idealization, sometimes but not always associated with the story of Zeuxis. You can see that this principle, the Zeuxis principle, shares certain assumptions with the Pygmalion principle. It differs in founding the idealizing process on a fantasy of dismemberment or amputation. The fantasy may seem harmless, the violence purely imaginary, but that only works to confirm the obscene connoisseurship of the male gaze as it objectifies its fantasy of woman. The kicker in the anecdote comes out in Cicero's version. There we learn that when Zeuxis was first taken to the palaistra, the gym, he marveled at the bodies of the boys at play and asked to see their sisters. (laughs) (laughs) The Zeuxis principle of synthetic idealization is a central premise in Vasari's version of mimetic idealism. He mentions the story two or three times and also applies it in several passages without referring to Zeuxis. I dwell on the anecdote because, as we'll see later, something very strange happens to it in the life of Leonardo. Turning now to Leonardo's life, let's begin with Barolsky's interesting suggestion that there is something of the Medusa in Leonardo's Mona Lisa, or rather, he adds, in Vasari's description of the painting. This self-correction is itself significant. Whose conception are we talking about? Leonardo's, or Vassari's. Barolsky stays with Vasari, as he continues, not only, he says, does a Medusa lie beneath the surface of Leonardo's creation as Vassari sees it, but so too does Pygmalion, because Mona Lisa is so lifelike that she appears to be of real flesh. Here is the full description Barolsky quotes from, and it's the first passage on your handout. In this head, Whoever wants to can easily see how art is able to imitate nature, for in it were counterfeited all the details that can with subtlety be painted. The eyes have that luster and moistness that are always seen in life, and around them are all those rosy, pale tones, and the lashes, which can't be represented without the greatest subtlety. The eyebrows, through his having shown the manner in which the hairs spring from the flesh, more thickly there, more thinly here, and follow the pores of the skin, could not be more natural. The nose, with its beautiful nostrils, rosy and delicate, appeared to be alive. This is scary. The mouth, with its parted lips and with its corners united by the red of the lips, to the flushed tints of the face, seemed in truth to be no mere colors but flesh. Whoever looked most intently at the pit of the throat could see the pulses beating. <laughs> Now, this doesn't need much comment. It evokes thoughts of the fetishism of the male gaze, of the deceptive connoisseurship of the Petrarchan sonneteer, things like that. The aesthetics of artistic judgment and a voyeuristic fascination converge. What complicates the passage is that Vasari may never have seen this portrait because Leonardo took it to France, which is where Vasari, who never went to France, says it was. It's been pointed out that the description does not accurately reflect the painting as we have it today. Had he described what he saw, Vassari would be like Gmalion investing his desire in a work of art to make it come alive. Instead, while pretending to give us an ekphrasis, a visual description, he spins out the fantasy of an idealized portrait to which he attributes the seductiveness of the idealized form of woman. A woman, that is as a man's work of art. Barolsky is sensitive to the uncanniness, the creepiness of this performance, but his comment again raises the questions of whose performance he's responding to. I quote him, the terrifying Mona Lisa is a Medusa-like creature by a modern Pygmalion, or so Vasari suggests, close quote. I'll return to this question after I briefly consider the more general framework of the creepiness itself. Behind Vasari's verbal caresses of Mona Lisa lurks the rejection of nature as mother of the ills that flesh is heir to. This rejection is covered over by the trope of resurrection. There can be no rebirth without death, No life for Pygmalion's statue without death to the wicked Propatides, the prostitute's Pygmalion contemns. No resurrection of the body in art without the sacrifice of the body in nature. Vassari's recourse to the metaphor of rebirth or resurrection is often playful, but the playfulness cannot conceal his commitment to a seriously misogynistic theory of art history. Look, for example, at the second passage in the handout. And I give both the Italian and the English, and I'll just do the translation. And now that we have taken these three arts from the wet nurse to use a common passion of speaking and draw them out of their infancy, their second age arises. The metaphors here are, are, are oddly mixed. On the one hand, balia, wet nurse, fanchulezza, which is infancy, and the kinship of the word levate, taken, delivered, to the word levatrice, midwife, these cue the reader to think of the life cycle. Vasari's distinction between stages and functions is a little hazy, but we can make out a progress from birth or rebirth to weaning and nurture. Whether we take the word levate to denote removal from the mother or from the midwife or from the wet nurse, its contribution to the image is supported by the extractive sense of the word cavatele, drawn them out, which comes from cavare, which connects to such terms as cave and excavate. And yet on the other hand, the joint appearance of levare and cavare redirects them from nature to art together to take away and to extract, describe the sculptor's activity. And in fact, Passari and others use the phrase la via del levare to denote that activity of sculpture. So there's a conflict in the sentence between the figures of weaning and those of sculpture and the conflict is gender specific. The formative power represented, and thus dominated by woman is displaced to, and thus expropriated by, the male agency embodied in Michelangelo and his godlike art. Vesari assimilates both the pattern of his history and its culmination to the art of levare and cavare, by which Michelangelo extracts forms from nature. In the long run, Deliverance from woman signifies deliverance from nature. But perfection is attainable only by passing through the period of mimesis, in which nature is conquered by those who aspire merely to reproduce her, from mimesis to the third age of idealization, in which to conquer nature means to transcend her. Rhetorically, Vasari's mixing of metaphors may signal a gesture of reconciliation. But the gesture fails as the life cycle metaphor is shunted through the relay of levare and cavare. The conflict between mothering and fathering principles, between nurture and sculpture, gets resolved in favor of the latter of sculpture. The redeemed or resurrected image of nature requires the death of nature or such a death as that implied by the Zux's principle of selective amputation. The technical phrase, via del levare, contains within itself an ambiguity that gives it the potential valency of the now famous Hegelian principle of Aufheben, to sublate or supersede. Like the English word suspend, levare not only means to cancel, to repeal, to take away, to subtract, to deliver from, it also means to raise up, and in addition to preserve as in resurrection. To save or salvage nature by delivering her from her imperfections entails a passage through the violence that levare, the subtractive work of the sculptor, has in common with scorticare, to flay, or to skin, which is the subtractive work of the anatomist. In Vasari's story, this equivalence makes it possible for the harshness of flaying to be lightened or relieved by supplementing the imitation of dead and living body parts with the imitation of ancient statues. But there's no getting around the necessity of violence. Whether actual, graphic, or imaginary, violence is fundamental to the project of mimetic idealism. In this project, nature is transcended, the natural body destroyed and resurrected because they don't meet the standards of divinely fathered design design. It's as if to acknowledge or concede the ground of violence without which the accomplishments of a third sage wouldn't be possible that Vasari positions Leonardo da Vinci at the gateway of that glorious period. I return now to the vexed relation between Vasari and Leonardo that we glimpsed earlier in the description of the Mona Lisa. Leonardo emerges in the pages of The laws as a strange and compelling figure, half trickster and half magus. Hints of diabolization smoke the edges of Vasari's portrait, and there's a good narrative reason for this. Leonardo is constructed by that portrait as the anti-hero who embodies the dark side of the exemplarity Vasari invests in Michelangelo. This dark side surfaces briefly but disturbingly in references to the relation between Leonardo and his teacher, Andrea del Verrocchio. Verrocchio painted a baptism of Christ to which Leonardo contributed an angel. This angel, Vasari tells us, surpassed the one Verrocchio painted. Gombrich argues that the contrast between the two angels makes it all the more striking how much of the armature of Verrocchio remains visible in the types we associate with Leonardo's art. Indeed, without barocchio's matter-of-fact realism, Leonardo's art could not have taken flight towards the ideal." Close quote. That was Gombrich. For Gombrich, the episode merely illustrates the upward course of the passage from Vasari's second to his third stage. But his focus obscures something more dramatic, something less benign, going on in an anecdote that appears in each of the two biographies. Both occurrences make the same point. In the second stage, Life of Erogio, Vessari writes that because Leonardo's angel surpassed his masters, Andrea was so ashamed that he resolved he would never take up a brush again. In the third stage, Life of Leonardo, he repeats that this was the reason why Andrea would never again touch colors. In the life of Andrea, the anecdote appears a few paragraphs after Vasari mentions not only cartoons that Barocchio started to paint and left unfinished, but also several of his drawings of women that Leonardo was always imitating for their beauty. That's Vasari. Gombrich emphasizes the continuity between master and pupil with a trope that vaguely suggests paternal insemination, quote, when Leonardo meditated on, on the representation of a beautiful figure, the schema that first flowed into his pen was Verrocchio's. Close quote. Judging from Gombrich's discussion and illustrations, it's possible that Leonardo's angel may have had its starting point in the solid craft of Verrocchio, and the possibility suggests a more subversive Oedipal relation than Gombrich seems willing to entertain, for In the two lives, textually bound together by the master-pupil ligature, Vasari gestures toward a grim parody of emulation in which the pupil, having killed the paternal master, appropriates his art. A similar example of hubris appears early in the life of Leonardo. After studying arithmetic for only a few months, Vasari tells us, the young genius had become so proficient that by continually raising doubts and difficulties to the master who was teaching him, he often confounded him. So Vassari ostensibly mentions this to illustrate the restless curiosity that leads Leonardo to begin and then abandon many studies. He lets the reader wonder whether there aren't darker purposes behind the marvelous boy's inability to persevere. He who does not surpass his master is a wretched pupil, wrote Leonardo. And Gombrich, after citing this aphorism, dryly adds that Leonardo only had wretched pupils. (laughs) To me, this suggests that the overly precocious student must have been a wretched master. Although that isn't an inference Gombrich develops, it's one of the astringencies lurking in the Vasarian subtext. Vasari's relatively ample account of Orocchio's pupils stands in sharp contrast to the cursory mention of two pupils that closes his life of Leonardo. The other side of this compensatory justice is that Vasari's Leonardo is infected with a more virulent form of his master's disease of not finishing. Vasari refers more than a dozen times to Leonardo's failure to complete works, a motif introduced by the statement that although Leonardo was marvelous and divinely inspired, he was also variable and unstable, and he set himself to learn many things which, having begun, he then abandoned. The reasons Vasari gives for the failures are themselves variable and unstable. For example, early in the life we encounter this passage, one sees clearly that Leonardo, because of his understanding of art, began many things and never finished one of them. It seemed to him that the hand could not reach the perfection of art in the things he imagined, seeing that there formed in the idea some difficulties so subtle and marvelous that they could never be expressed by the hands, no matter how excellently those hands were. Let's note two things about this passage. The first is that It's seeming to him Parendoli in the second line flags free indirect discourse. Vasari is citing and apparently privileging Leonardo's explanation. This explanation seems to put a positive spin on a negative trait. The second thing is that this theory of artistic value this belief implies effectively makes the incompleteness of the work a sign of an imagination so powerful that it transcends both nature and art. By its incompleteness, the work signifies that Leonardo's inventions in the idea, nell'idea, idea, exceed the capacity of even his own remarkable mastery of disegno to do them justice. The best way to take the measure of Vassar's view of this explanation is to compare it to similar passages in the life of Michelangelo, In shifting the source of the sentiment from Vasari to Leonardo, indirect discourse gives it the hollow ring of rationalization. But when Vasari expresses the same opinion about Michelangelo, there's no such ring. It's the narrator's own awe. That makes it hard for him to stumble through and finish what can only euphemistically be called a sentence, and I quote it. He had imagination of such a kind, and so perfect, and literally that, case, and the things conceived by him were such that often, through not being able to express with the hands conceptions so terrible and grand, he abandoned his works. He even spoiled, wasted many of them. The contrast in both voicing and rhetoric reduces it to a proleptic parody of the development thesis that's fulfilled in the translation of Michelangelo's imagination, his Fantasia. In another passage, Vasari writes that Leonardo planned an equestrian statue on so large a scale that it seemed impossible to finish. This caused some to say that he never intended to finish it. After an obligatory glance at the envy and malice of human opinion, Vasari acknowledges that in this case, given Leonardo's poor track record, the skepticism was justified. Yet in the very next sentence, he again reverses his field and defends Leonardo against the charge. But in truth, one can believe that his vast and most excellent mind was hindered by being too full of desire and that his wishing always to seek excellence upon excellence and perfection upon perfection was the cause of the problem, so that the work lagged behind the desire, as our Petrarch has said, a quote from Vassari. When I see Vassari as our Petrarch, I think our Leonardo, because by this time I've been programmed to read such statements as instances of de facto indirect discourse. The author parrots the explanation he assigns to Leonardo in previous passages, and he does so with a string of hyperboles that smacks of mimicry. And this leads me to suspect that behind so conspicuously charitable an explanation, there lurks an uncharitable motive. Nothing in the text confirms my suspicion, but neither does anything discourage it. Once you register this suspicion, however, it begins to contaminate other passages in Vasari's life. And there are several of them on the handout, 4A to 4G, and I'm only going to read a few of them. I'll read 4C and 4D. Among his models and plans, there was one which Leonardo would often put before the citizens who were then governing Florence, many of them men of great discernment. Showing how he proposed to raise and place steps under the Church of San Giovanni without damaging the fabric. His arguments were so cogent that the others would allow themselves to be convinced, although, when they all went their several ways, each would realize the impossibility of what Leonardo suggested. <laughs> Moreover, 4D. He was a sparkling conversationalist, and after they had spoken together, the Duke developed almost boundless love and admiration for Leonardo's talents. And for G, because of his many wonderful gifts, although he accomplished far more in words than in deeds, his name and fame will never be extinguished. Taken out of context and reeled off in succession, these passages convey an edge of sarcasm that gets dulled or sheathed when they're repositioned in their original textual places. But there are also several moments in which flashes of irony glint from surprising and at times contradictory juxtapositions, as the following example will show. In his eulogizing conclusion... Bessari picks out three personal traits to commemorate. First, with the splendor of his appearance, which was very beautiful, Leonardo would cheer up every troubled spirit and with his words would overcome every stubborn will. Second, by his physical strength, he would restrain every violent fury and with his right hand would twist an iron doorbell pole or a horseshoe as if it were lead. Third, out of his liberality, he would shelter and feed all his friends, both rich and poor, provided that they had ingenio e virtù. <laughs> the figure profile—someone and, and, and translates this the figure profile by this epitaphic cameo is larger than life, charismatic and violent. But the sense of dangerously seductive and violent power is attenuated by the third trait. Or it would be had Vasari told us how Leonardo fills in those honorific blanks, Ingenio and YouTube, in terms of which he decides who deserves his Leonardo's beneficence. If we search for clues in earlier passages, this is what we find quote, He was so pleasing in conversation that he attracted to himself the hearts of men. And although he possessed, one might say, nothing and worked, little. He always kept servants and horses. Now, how did he manage that? (laughs) Such puzzling juxtapositions are not infrequent in this portrait, but few are as mystifying as the next one, in which the first sentence asserts virtues that the remainder of the passage resoundingly disconfirms. This is passage five on the handout. Leonardo had very great spirit, and in his very action was most generous. It said that going to the bank for the allowance he used to draw every month from Piero Soderini, the cashier wanted to give him certain paper packets of pence, but he wouldn't take them, saying in an answer, I'm no penny painter.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: Wherefore, Leonardo so wrought upon his friends that he got the money together from them and took it to Piero to repay him, but Piero would not accept it. When this passage is set beside those above it in the handout, the effect on ingenio e Too is subversive. You begin to wonder how Leonardo's friends prove their friendship and how they qualify for bed and board, a casa sua, Maybe the rich lend money and pay for dinner, and possibly also for horses, and maybe the poor run errands, cook dinner, and stand in as servants. These passages may resonate with a weird mixture of tones, but at least they represent a figure who moves about in a comfortable, if crowded, domesticity. In that respect, they pale before the unhomelike setting of our next episode which takes place in Leonardo's cave and which is recounted in passage six, Vasari tells the following story about Leonardo. The painter's father once asked him to paint something on una rotella, a buckler, that his peasant had cut from a fig tree and fashioned with his own hands. When Leonardo got around to it, he took this buckler up in his hands and he saw that it was twisted, badly made, and awkward. So he straightened it out with fire and gave it to an artisan who made it smooth and even. Leonardo then began to think what he could paint upon it that might be able to terrify all who should see it, producing the same effect as once did the head of Medusa. And so this is what he did. He had a room into which no one but himself entered. And into this room he brought lizards, crickets, serpents, butterflies, grasshoppers, bats, and other strange kinds of similar animals out of the number of which variously put together he drew forth a most horrible and fearful beast which with its breath poisoned and kindled the air and he made it issue forth from a dark and jagged rock belching poison from its open throat fire from its eyes and smoke from its nostrils in so strange a fashion it appeared altogether a monstrous and horrible thing. And so long did he labor over making it that the stench of the dead animals in the room was past bearing. But Leonardo did not notice it, so great was the love that he bore toward art. The strangest moment in this passage occurs in the appearance of the verb cavo, he drew forth, which we've already encountered, cavare. And the most significant phrase is that one containing that verb Out of the number of the animals variously put together, he drew forth, cavo, a most horrible and fearful beast. One translator renders cavo as he formed and another as he created, but the creative action implied by the verb cavare is more like excavation or extraction, as one extracts a tooth or digs up an old statue or like Michelangelo, draws forth the statue lurking in the stone. Leonardo's monster is excavated from its womb. What he paints is, in effect, an image of that genesis. And I quote, he made it issue forth from a dark and broken or cloven rock as if it shatters the birth portal. An emergence that simultaneously from a womb and a tomb is a resurrection, a miracle, It transcends nature's limits. It transgresses her law. It violates her body. This resurrection from the tomb womb should have a familiar ring to it. The passage is a demonic, if comic, parody of a story I described earlier in this talk as one of the foundational anecdotes of mimetic idealism, which you recall is the ideology that shapes Vasari's narrative The story I'm referring to is the story of Zeuxis and the Crotonian virgins. In Leonardo's cave, the hunter of strange little creatures substitutes their body parts for those of the virgins in Zeuxis story and joins them together in a medusan monster, a figure of the greatest possible ugliness. And since in nature complete uglinesses are not to be found, since the creation of ideal ugliness calls for acts of discrimination or incrimination, the imperfectly ugly specimens of nature discarded by the artist's selection process lie maimed and stinking where they rot. You can probably tell by my heated rhetoric that I'm seriously invested in this interpretation of Leonardo's cave And you may also be wondering whether it refers even remotely to anything in Vasari's text. It truly doesn't come from the narrator of Vasari's text. His point in mentioning the stink of corpses is obviously that Leonardo wasted a lot of time and talent on off-the-wall projects, and that he never got around to finishing the important ones. I take the concluding reference to his great love of art with a grain of salt. It sounds a little edgy and impatient, and as if to prove his point, Vasari goes on to show how Leonardo got more or less conned by his father. Leonardo sent him word that the peasant's buckler was finished and invited him to come see it. He displayed it in a dim light so that when his father saw it, he was startled because he thought he was looking at a real ideal monster. But if its fiery eyes shook him up, they didn't petrify him enough to keep him from realizing that this, that this clever and well-made thing had market value. So the, his father gave the peasants another shield on the sly and sold Leonardo's for a lot of money to someone who later resold it to the Duke of Milan for even more. Thus, Bessari closes up the little wound he let Leonardo's cave make in his story of the progress of art. But only half a page or so later, he briefly opens it up again when he writes that, quote, the idea came to Leonardo to paint a picture in oils of the head of a Medusa attired with a coil of snakes, close quote. This, he adds, was the strangest and most extravagant invention that could be imagined. But since it was a work that took time, it remained unfinished, as happened with almost all his things. Here Vasari's impatience is marked, and examples of this testy reaction occur throughout the life of Leonardo. There's another example. In the last sentence is a paragraph of silly stunts on your handout. He made an infinite, num- infinite number of such follies. So I suspect that the kind of strange and extravagant reading I'm subjecting Vasari's text to, would produce the same reaction from (laughs) Bassari. He doesn't have time for fantasies about Medusa, however well-written they are. He might, however, be willing to entertain a question as to why Leonardo has Medusa on his mind, since he's careful to make it clear that that's where both ideas came from. In the S.H.I.E.L.D. passage, he says, Leonardo began to think of how to produce the Medusa effect, And in the second passage, he says, the fantasy came to Leonardo to paint the Medusa. It's worth noting that even though Freud consulted Vasari while writing about Leonardo, he never mentions these references to Medusa. Maybe it's because he was psychoanalyzing Leonardo, not Vasari, and he assumed, as I do, that Vasari's two attributions to Leonardo's mind are displacements. No doubt the attributions can be explained as rhetorical devices, attempts to make the story more vivid. But why pick the thought of Medusa as the content of the devices? And why twice within two pages? That says more about Asari than about Leonardo. But just what does it say? Let's assume that the figure of Medusa has something to do with Vasari's homosocial vision of artistic progress and practice, that Medusa embodies a male fantasy of woman's and nature's phallic revenge, and that her power to petrify and immobilize expresses the fear that lurks within the desire driving the system of mimetic idealism. I'm speaking of the fearful desire of artists to master, use, and dispense with nature. To unpetrify stone and mobilize pigment until the re- resurrected forms of the undead begin to quiver and breathe, and above all, to look at, to recognize, and gracefully submit to their makers. The question I'm raising has to do with textual agency. To whom or what do we attribute the production of meaning? And I get my sense of the particular meaning involved in the Medusa episode from an admittedly dubious source, Caravaggio's searingly painful image of the victimized monster painted on a shield, a rotella, which is also a mirror, signifying that the hero dealt her a double death. Before he decapitated her, he surprised her with a mirror and gave her the chance to do herself in. What Caravaggio captures is the final fright, the despair of petrifying self-recognition, the recognition of what has been done to her by a coalition of patriarchal agents, by the hero, by the artist, and by Athena, the virgin goddess of wisdom and domestic arts immaculately conceived from Jove's head. Caravaggio's Medusa is dated around the middle 1590s and it's been associated with Leonardo, though so in a confused way. One scholar, for example, writes that Caravaggio may have read in Vasari's lives that Leonardo had also painted a shield with a decapitated Medusa, a painting Vasari said was never finished, close quote. Though he misreads Vasari and mixes up the two references, the connection gives me the courage to assign my interpretation of Caravaggio's interpretation of Medusa to Leonardo, or should I assign it to Vasari? But how could I, since in the case of both shields, the target of critique is the set of values Vasari promotes in his fluid drive version of emetic idealism. The target is the progress of art through androgenesis to resurrection. The progress Vasari's heroizing rhetoric defends against the revenge of the other it demonizes. I'm not sure how to account for it or whether I need to account for it. But Vasari's Leonardo several times takes pot shots at what I construe to be the key terms of Vasari's project. The buckler is one example. Another is a hilarious spin imparted by the rationalizations Vasari attributes to Leonardo. The amount of work you don't finish becomes an index and measure of your artistic greatness. If you leave enough stuff incomplete, he might become as good or as well thought of as Michelangelo. The mean-minded view of this is that Leonardo was putting Vasari on, and Vasari is making it clear he doesn't believe a word of it. Several passages of indirect discourse in the life of Leonardo have the same effect. Vasari appears to be mimicking and thus distancing himself from the rationalizations of a silver-tongued orator whose behavior and attitudes make him uncomfortable. And well, they might, since Leonardo seems in turn to be sending up some of Vasari's favorite notions, like the inimitable splendor of the idea, the disegno planted by God in the artist's mind, the synthetic or Zooksian approach to ideal beauty, and the value of the sciences of art and anatomy to the project of passing through and beyond nature. To cite one example, the most detailed account of anatomy in the lives appears not surprisingly, in the life of Leonardo. Vasari devotes almost a page to it. A few lines later, abruptly signaling a change of subject, he recounts the first of several silly stunts performed by Leonardo, and this is number seven in the handout. The lion that walked a few steps, opened its breast, and showed it full of lilies. (laughs) The context makes this a parody of anatomical disclosure In his notebooks, Leonardo remarked that the flayed body is a bloody mess, likely to arouse loathing, and that it's unreadable until the anatomizing artist draws the order forth from the confusion. The lion is a fantasy for the squeamish, and also it's a wind-up toy version of the self-demonstrating figures that appeared in some anatomy textbooks during Vasari's lifetime, though the first one we know about wasn't published until two years after Leonardo died. Once again, we have an agency problem. Just who's doing what to whom and how do we account for it? In Vasari's lives, we expect to find an expression of the narrator's artistic ideals. Why then do so many passages in the life of Leonardo serve up a parody of those ideals? How can I account for the strange feeling I get when I read Vasari's description of Leonardo's silly stunts, that those stunts are aimed at Vasari. They're aimed to elicit just the irritable response they get from the prudent narrator who's the servitor of dukes. So what's it need for Vasari to have or make Leonardo do this to him, for him to construct a Leonardo in which or whom he embodies a bad attitude toward mimetic idealism? I wish I knew what it means. I'm still working on it. <laughs> the best I can do at this time is conclude with a couple of hypotheses I'm hoping to follow up someday. Vasari constructs Leonardo as a charismatic figure, part magus, part genius, part trickster, part huckster. He dwells on his physical and rhetorical presence, his dexterity and strength, the beauty of his body, the brilliance of his mind, his winning way with words, his skill in music, his ability to persuade, to confound and confound others with his reasoning, his interest in the bodies, dead or alive, of humans and horses. His gifts and achievements elicit from Vasari passages of effusive praise that seem pretty straightforward. But if you combine these with the tonally more complex and diffident passages we've looked at, you get a performance that betrays the narrator's attempt to defend against the fascination of the brilliant specter he conjures up, a dangerously seductive and potentially violent figure, and yet a fascination the text at the same time wishes to convey. Vasari probably never saw Leonardo. He resurrects him by bringing together in one biographical corpus, the scattered bits of anecdotal, archival, and visual data he chose as the most beautiful expression of his thematic and narrative designs. The status of his relation to Leonardo is pretty much the same as the status of his relation to the Mona Lisa, but he endows Leonardo with aura in Benjamin's sense, the ability of the object being looked at to return the observer's look. Had he actually seen the Mona Lisa, he might have had to acknowledge the same effect. I suggested earlier that Leonardo is constructed as the antihero to Michelangelo's hero. I conclude with a comment on that coupling. On genetic or intentional grounds, the likelihood of a contrast between Leonardo and Michelangelo is supported not only by the antipathy and competition between those two, both of which Sari mentioned, but also by Vasari's different relations to them. He knew Michelangelo well, but he was only seven when Leonardo died. He tells us that Michelangelo was sent down to earth as a gift from God, like Christ, and the life amply documents Michelangelo's artistic feats of resurrection, some of which are, in a major way, about resurrection. Leonardo, whose life inaugurates the third stage in Vasari's scheme, is positioned as the precursor, like the Baptist, he will have to grow smaller as Michelangelo grows larger. A number of echoes binding the two lives together suggest that his short biography is meant to provide a preliminary sketch of those qualities of the third stage that are most fully unfolded in Michelangelo. What the sketch also shows, the qualities will have to be untwisted and refined like the peasant's figwood shield. The problem Vasari's text poses for his narrator is that Leonardo isn't happy with his role as precursor. If you compare his rationalizations <laughs> for not finishing work to Vasari's wide-eyed praise of the same trait in Michelangelo, you could almost imagine that Leonardo was sending up his arch-rival. He's less inclined to precursor Michelangelo than to curse him. Appearing at the critical moment, the threshold over which the progress of art crosses from mimesis to, uh, idealization. He stands in the way and offers resistance, resistance to the cost of the crossing, resistance to the discursive blandness of the fluid drive system that motivates and justifies the violence against nature Leonardo himself is made to represent. The textual diffidence toward this figure is marked by the desperate hyperboles of the sentence that opens his life. And this is the last passage, passage nine in the handout. The greatest gifts are often seen in the course of nature reigned by celestial influences on human creatures. And sometimes in supernatural fashion, beauty, grace, and talent are united overflowingly in one single person. So that whatever he turns his attention to, his every action is so divine that surpassing all the other men, it makes itself clearly known as a thing bestowed by God, as it is, and not acquired by human art. The word I translate as overflowingly, straboche volmente, also means dangerously, rashly, precipitously. And since straboque means literally out of the mouth, it connotes a Vincian deluge, but one poured out of the heavenly mouth as if God, in this case, acted intemperately. Similar phrases applied to Michelangelo are, in fact, much more temperate. Leonardo suffers from an unresurrectable excess of incarnation of the spirit of art. It makes him a little wayward, a little kinky, a little hard to domesticate. It makes him uncanny. But if this is what the text of Assari's lives does to Leonardo, what does it make Leonardo do to its narrator? There are things the text doesn't like about mimetic idealism and the narrator's theory of art, and it discreetly, considerately displaces the expression of those things to Leonardo. It lets him embody the abjected material so that he becomes the focus of Vasari's anxiety, and Leonardo accepts that. A defeated god, an agent of retribution, a prankster, a scarifier who goes bump in the night. He watches the narrator with sardonic amusement. Or, as I imagine Tegmayan's ivory statue does on waking into life, Leonardo gazes back at his creator in puzzled contemplation or in contempt. Thank you.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the New York Institute for Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.